Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Amy, and this is a re-recording of the sermon I preached on Galatians 3 at church on Sunday. And to help us get into this passage, I asked the kids of our church who had just finished their school year last week, I asked them a couple of questions to help us out. One of those questions was, what kind of rules do you follow when you go to school? And the kids told me all kinds of rules. You might remember some of them. Standing in a single file line, sitting at your desk, keeping your hands on your desk where your teacher can see them, raising your hand if you need to ask for something, always obeying your teacher. There's some rules about being polite, not being rude, putting forth best effort. And then I asked the kids, how do you feel when you get home and you don't have all those rules to follow anymore? And one girl said, I feel free. I loved that description. So we're going to hold on to the idea of those school rules, that memory of what it feels like to be following them all day And then that idea of what it is to shed them off and to feel free when we are no longer in school, but we are back at home for the day. That description from the kids is going to help us understand what God is saying to us in Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 to 29, our passage for today. Now, this passage is part of a much bigger argument that the book of Galatians is making about why Christians in that area did not need to do what they were trying to do, which is they didn't need to convert to Judaism in order to follow Jesus. They didn't need to follow the Jewish law and rituals and customs in order to be Christians. Now, Paul, the writer of this letter, he was Jewish himself, and he was a faithful follower of the Jewish law, So he's never going to argue that they don't need to follow the law because the law is bad. But instead, what he's going to do in this passage is he's going to make this distinction between life under the law and life in Christ. And he says that the best the law could ever do is just give us a life that's sort of like a nice, orderly school, or even a well-guarded prison, something that's able to keep us in line and keep us out of too much trouble. But by contrast, life in Christ will make us beloved children, free people, inheritors of all the fullness of God's abundant promises. And in this passage, God, Paul is going to hold out that contrast to us as if to ask, wouldn't you rather have life in Christ? And the passage begins, Now before faith came, we were imprisoned and guarded under the law until faith would be revealed. Therefore, the law was our disciplinarian until Christ came so that we might be reckoned as righteous by faith. Notice the before and after language here. Before faith came, we were imprisoned under the law. For how long? Well, until faith came. 
And the passage says this a few different ways. Until faith would be revealed, until Christ came, until we were reckoned righteous by faith. We'll talk about all of those untils, all of that after part in a minute. But we'll begin with the before. We'll begin where Paul does, looking at what it was like before faith came, when we were imprisoned under the law. But first, it might be helpful to just pause for a moment and define what Paul means when he says the law. The law is a really important part of the story of the Jewish people, which begins thousands and thousands of years ago with a very old man named Abraham who doesn't have any kids. And God promised Abraham that one day he would become the father of this vast people, more than all the stars in the sky, and that through him all the peoples of the world would be blessed. And it happened. Eventually, Abraham's very old wife had children. Those children had children. And eventually, those people called the Israelites became so numerous that they spread out all over that part of the ancient world. And there were so many of them in Egypt that the ruling Pharaoh felt threatened by them, and he made them his slaves. And the oppression of the Israelites displeased God, which oppression always does. And so God called a man named Moses to lead his people out of Egypt to freedom. And Weber read that beautiful passage from Hosea 11 a moment ago, where in chapter in verse 1, God describes this moment in the history of his people so tenderly, saying, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Do you hear that language of sonship? God actually used the same language when he went to Moses and told him to go to Pharaoh and tell him to let the people go. He told him to tell Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Again, it's this language of God's people being his sons. Now, this isn't God being sexist and favoring sons over daughters. This is a way of God communicating the status of his people within what was the cultural framework of the time. It's actually a way of raising the entire people group, men and women, up to the most privileged status of firstborn sons because firstborn sons are heirs in this culture. Calling Israel his firstborn son is a way of God saying, this group of people is beloved. They are heirs to all the riches of heaven and everything that is mine is theirs to inherit. And that is why I am calling them out of Egypt. Slavery is incompatible with who they are. And God did call his beloved son, his people, out of Egypt. God parted the sea so they could walk through the waters on dry land safely to the other side. And once they were there, that's when God gave them the law this code of ethics and behaviors that would mark these people as God's firstborn sons. 
These people who had been promised to Abraham, who had been delivered from slavery, this law would mark the boundaries of who they were and how they behaved. And so when Paul uses the law in the book of Galatians, he has this whole story of a delivered and beloved people in mind. And the law is a good thing. The law kept people safe. It kept their community in good order. It tried really hard to help them focus their worship on the one true God who had given them everything. The law protected them from the sinful actions of other people. It protected other people from their own sinful actions. It tamped down the very worst of what humans could do. And it gave them a framework for trying to live within justice and peace. But the law was never meant to be the whole fullness of what it was to be God's people. The law was always pointing towards something more. And along the way, it was restraining evil. It was encountering people with how much they needed God's help to keep the law, how much mercy they were receiving. And that all brings us back to Galatians. We hear in this passage the limits of the law when Paul says that it imprisons and guards us, when he calls it a disciplinarian, The word that's translated disciplinarian here was usually used for a family servant whose job it was to sort of mind the children, to escort them to and from school, to kind of look over their shoulders as they studied, oversee their lessons, to make sure they weren't getting too distracted, keep them in line, keep them out of too much mischief. And in that way, it functioned a lot like the school rules that the kids told me about. Those rules don't themselves have the power to teach anything or to transform people. The rules are there to just keep a lid on the chaos. But God did not create and rescue a people and call them his firstborn sons so that they could live like well-controlled school children at their desks so that life could feel like a guarded prison. All of that is the before part, before faith came, before faith was revealed, before Christ came. And you can feel in this passage, Paul is just ready to burst with the good part, with the after. Listen to what he says. Now that faith has come, we are no longer subject to a disciplinarian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. We are not students. We are not prisoners. In Christ Jesus, we are children of God through faith. Now, faith means a few things throughout the book of Galatians. It does mean believe, which is what we usually think of when we hear the word faith. And there are a number of things that Paul invites us to believe, to have faith in throughout this book. Believe that Jesus is God. Believe that God raised him from the dead. That through his resurrection, we get brought into God's family. That's all what faith 
does. But the word faith also means faithfulness. And Paul often uses faith in this way, to talk about the faithfulness of Christ himself. Jesus faithfully fulfilled the law and promises of God in his life and death and resurrection. His whole life was faithful. And Paul seems to have both our faith and Christ's faithfulness in mind when he uses the word faith in this passage. And in fact, he switches back and forth all the time between saying when Christ came and when faith came. And Paul gives us this beautiful description of how Christ's faithfulness becomes ours. He says, for in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There's no longer Jew or Greek. There's no longer slave or free. There's no longer male or female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. In other words, Paul says that by our faith and baptism, we get pulled in to the life and faithfulness of Christ himself. Christ's faithfulness and our faith become one. We are in Christ. We are clothed with Christ. We belong to Christ. We put our faith in Jesus's great faithfulness. And in faith, we pass through the waters of baptism as our deliverance from bondage to freedom, from death to resurrection life. We become so one with Christ, Paul says here we're baptized into him, that when we emerge from the waters of baptism, we are called sons of God. This passage uses the word children of God, but the word is actually sons in the Greek. And so the words that are spoken over Jesus at his baptism, those words that echo God's deliverance of his people from Egypt through the waters thousands of years ago, those same words become God's words to us too. You are my beloved son with you. I am well pleased. If you've never really stopped to marvel at the miracle of your baptism, here is your invitation. And if you've never been baptized, or if you were baptized 40 years ago and you don't really know what that meant, come and talk to me. But there is still more, because we aren't just given this oneness with Christ. We are also given this new oneness with every other Christian. We all now share this new status as God's children, and none of the old dividing lines matter anymore. Slave, free, male, female, Jew, Greek. We belong to Christ. We are children or sons of God. We are heirs. And that new status unleashes this radical new unity. 
this entirely new way of belonging to one another as the free and beloved people of God. And so it's really a shame that for the past 400 or so years, this passage has often been dissected and looked at trying to understand and explain perfectly the mechanisms of conversion and salvation, the relationship between faith and baptism, to plot it all on the timeline and figure out what order does everything go in, how does it work, how exactly does it fit together. So much theological energy has been spent trying to explain things in this passage that Paul never explains for us. Paul doesn't explain how faith and baptism work together to bring us into Christ. He just says that it does. Paul doesn't explain how you can fit all these mechanisms together because that's not what Paul's trying to do here. Paul in Galatians is not writing a systematic theology. He's not writing a doctrinal thesis. What he's writing is a lot more like an emancipation proclamation. He is trying to throw the doors wide open on how big and liberating this thing is that has happened. Christ has come. Faith has come. All that belongs to the Father is ours by faith, by baptism, by our oneness with the faithful Jesus. So why do we keep living like fearful school kids? And why have we given the world the impression that the church is a place for people who know how to behave, who know how to keep their hands on their desks and stay in line? And why are our churches full of the kinds of racial and gender and class divisions that Paul says here ought to be obliterated by the gospel? And why do we settle for a disciplinarian to keep us orderly and out of mischief when what is offered to us is a resurrection into a whole new kind of abundant life as God's children. This passage is the decisive proclamation that schools out forever. The prison doors are flung open, the captives are free, and all the old boundaries of in and out are overturned. And if we want to enjoy our life in Christ, and if we want the world to believe that our gospel is true and good and liberating and not just a set of school rules, then we have to live in this bold new reality that Christ has won for us, that Paul is holding out to us. We have to live as though this is true, even though it is not fully realized yet. Well, in a moment, we're going to take our usual moment of silence. And then Katie is going to lead us in a song. And the melody of this song will be familiar. It's an old, 
very well-known abolitionist hymn. But the lyrics of this song have been reworked and they cry out for the kind of unity, the kind of oneness that Paul talks about here in Galatians. The lyrics are also a little provocative, but Galatians ought to be provocative. Paul is often trying to be provocative. The gospel is provocative. And so let's let this story provoke us a little bit. And then we'll join in on the final choruses. We'll sing together to ask God to make us one. Let us sing the glory of the God.